Welcome once again to the Brain Candy Podcast. The favorite kind of podcast. It's the best kind of podcast. Because it's my podcast and it's Susie's podcast. That's my impromptu song. I just thought, why not stop? Why stop? I just keep going. It's so funny, those Patreon shout-outs that you do. Oh, that's Because that's what it sounds like. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, it's really, I just have one song, and I just keep singing different verses and different with different words for every Patreon shout-out. Today we are doing episode 107, and it's like uh, kind of an homage in a way to one of our book club books, yes. Hitmakers. So we're the, talking about... I'd say... One of my top five favorite books in the last five years. Yeah. It's tremendous. Tremendous. Yeah. If you're not in the book club, you can join. It's on our website, thebraincandypodcast.com. We usually, like Sarah will pick a book and I'll pick a book, and and then we have meetings every month with our members, and we try to get as many author interviews as we can. Yeah. And um, we have an interview with the author of Hitmakers at the end of this episode, Derek Thompson. He's tremendous and so smart. And he's cool because, I mean, he is such a great writer, but he's also like, you know that Gladwellian people say, mm-hmm. people like Malcolm Gladwell? Mm-hmm. They just know how to make things interesting. I, yes, I, you stole the words right out of my mouth. I said he has a way of making me fascinated in what he's writing and hang on every single idea. You know, I, I, it was, I had to know more. Yeah. It's a really, really cool book because I think, you know, if you're people like us who are into sciencey stuff, but are also interested in pop culture, it's the perfect combo of that. So, well, and didn't he mention so many times the book that there's this aspect of like an aesthetic aha where you like, it's that moment where everything it feels perfect and it feels right. And I felt like that reading his book. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's like when you solve a crossword puzzle answer and you get that rush of a dra- of like a good stuff, yeah. dopamine and serotonin. And it's really, it's like a fix. And when, it, when you're excited about something that tickles your brain, yeah. really. And that's yeah. what it does. I there's something else I'm really excited about. Tell me, Sus. Um, it is Hubble contact lenses. I talked about it before, but the, now I've got some for my nephew Grant, who you met. Yeah, him. I did. Oh, he's so sweet. Grant. I am obsessed with him, and he's such a good kid. And he, he wears contacts. He's always worn them, and um, he's going away for ROTC this summer, and he is going to use them when he goes into like the freaking. I think they do training in like the woods. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to take these with me when I go in the woods. So the, what's cool about Hubble Contacts is they say it's like the Warby Parker of um, contact lenses because you skip the middleman. So basically you can get a fresh pair of lenses for every single day for half the price. So you get 60 contacts for 30 bucks, which is amazing and because it's really expensive for people. Yeah. But for a buck a day, it's half the price of other brands. Go to um, HubbleContacts.com to get your first two weeks for free. So give them a try. They're delivered right to your door. And I'm just saying, I love a good deal. I can see why that's <laughs> clearly a good solution for content. Wow. That was really seamless how you worked that in. See? Clear <laughs> solution. Because contact solution. Right. right, right. That's really good. It's probably not as good if you have to explain it. I always feel like these things are such... like. Whenever we find a good partner, it's like, give it a try. Yeah, man. Two weeks for free? Yep. 
So go to HubbleContacts.com, um, get 15 pairs of lenses for free. Can't beat that deal. Um, but let's start, let's start talking about some of the things in Hitmakers that yes. you found that like qu- stuck with you. Because uh- <laughs> his whole thesis is like, what's sticky? Uh-huh. Like, what's a sticky thing? Like a song? Yes. Or whatever that gets in your head. So what about the book kind of days later you were thinking about? You know, uh, and my husband and I had a few discussions uh, on this subject of when are your tastes solidified? Right. When, you know, we all have taste in fashion, taste in music, taste in whatever. But at a certain point, we stop looking for seeking out new things, and we're just kind of comfortable with same old, same old. Yeah. And they said that Spotify was able to find out that it's age 33 that you stop searching for new music. Yes. And I've checked with all of my friends, and they say, yep, that's about the age where I was just like, now I'm good listening to like this, and you kind of feel, I don't want to say feel older, but you know who the younger generation is. Well, you can see it with, um, a lot of older women with fashion. You kind of like whatever they're wearing is like when they stopped paying attention or caring about trends. So like, let's say you stopped in the eighties and then you still have that perm Mm -hmm. and those like, you know, Acid wash jeans. My mom was a wardrobe stylist in the film industry and very <laughs> successful and a wonderful, like phenomenal at her job, so fashionable. But she was styling clothes when that kind of like 1990s grungy homeless person thing was a real look. Like, yeah. Like runways were doing this, you know, Kanye West was not the first person to make the homeless look cool. Yeah. Uh, so she, but. She absolutely no. is still in the flowy, like multiple layers of fabric and stuff like that. She's totally, that was when she stopped doing wardrobe for film and for commercials. And she absolutely still loves that fashion. That she is still dresses so like that. funny. And I'd say she probably was more fashionable for longer because that was her business. And so she, until I would say she was in her probably like 40s, she was, and then at about when that fashion business stopped for her. She was like, "Yeah, I'm going to keep wearing these clothes. Do you think it was a conscious choice? No. I think you just like what you like, and then you stop seeking new stuff. So you stop getting excited by new stuff. This excitement that would make you fall in love with a new, I don't know, style of fashion. So if you're not seeking it out and you don't have that kind of like aha exciting moment of finding it, then you're probably just going to stick with what you're wearing. What's really fun about his book, Hitmakers, is that he explores that weird human tension in our brains between wanting something that's novel mm-hmm. and new and interesting and exciting, but wanting to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. So there's this weird balance that's happening in your brain where you want to be surprised, but not too much. Right. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And so like, he kind of uses that to describe... like People often talk about viral hits... Like, it came out of nowhere. But really, there's, uh-huh. like, a, an algorithm and a formula to how things spread. And a lot of it has to do with, like, that dissonance between, like, being comfortable and being surprised. Something yes. familiar and something new. And you can take something that's familiar and put 
a new take on it and it could be exciting. Or you can take something that's completely new but find a familiar piece to it that we can recognize and we'll think that's awesome and amazing. I was struck by, we've talked about in a previous episode about music because a lot of this is about music um, and hits and things like that with regard to the music industry. Um, how I have chronic earworms. Yes. I was thinking about that so much reading this book, about your chronic yeah. earworm. Mm-hmm. And it, it bothers me because there's never silence in my brain. Mm-hmm. But he did such a good job describing why that happens, which is that the subconscious brain likes the familiarity of that song, but oh. the conscious brain is is annoyed. <laughs> and that your two parts oh, of your brain fighting. are in war. Yeah. That's so great. And that that really made me actually feel better about it. Because it's like, okay, at least I know why it's going on. What's your favorite one-hit wonder of all time? Mm, you mean fa- true favorite? Well, or or you can give me a few. Like, what are some of your favorite one-hit wonders? What's yours? Uh, the other day I heard the song, Oh, Mickey. Oh, my God. And I was so like, good. I love that song. Rico Suave was funny. Oh, 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 I'm Too Sexy. I'm Too Sexy. Oh, come on. Also, I kind of would count It's Raining Men as a one-hit wonder. Yeah, the Weather Girls never Weather hit Girls. <laughs> I love that song. I It comes on at my gym, but only on Tuesday mornings. And when it comes on... Oh, Why I do Tuesday the whole for, uh, for some reason whoever plays their whoever plays their iPod or whoever's turn it is to play their music on Tuesday, we would get along. It's all like that kind of music and it is so good. You know a lot of one hit wonders like off the top I of your do, head. I do actually, now that you think about it. I I know a lot of one hit wonders. That's weird. And you know what I used to love were those uh one hit wonder um, TV shows that they would have on VH1 and stuff. Absolutely. I love... I VH1. Live for that. Why don't you do those shows? Who? Me? Yeah. Not like the one... But it'd be the commentary on those shows. Somebody should have you do that. You said it. You're hilarious. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to take away from your day job, but... <laughs> you know, Sarah, if they came and knock and believe me, I would. <sighs> I mean, come on. I, wish- I loved that whole period of time on VH1. Yes. Because that's an example of Derek's thesis, which is like, it was a new concept to like uh-huh. be nostalgic on TV, but we were familiar oh with God, all of the content. And that's why we tune in and that's why we love it. Yeah. Yes. Did you remember like pop-up videos? I love pop-up video. Pop-up video. It combines two of our favorite things, music and facts. Uh, <laughs> I was glued. And I always liked, my mom would always leave very, very, very early in the morning to go to work. And I loved waking up and watching her get ready. So... That, I would be up at like five o'clock in the morning and that way before school. And that was always on really, That's really, weird. really early in the morning. So I would just watch. Why were you up so early? Because I, I liked, I don't know. There's something I liked waking up with, with my mom when she was like getting ready to leave for work and do all that stuff. I still like watching my husband when he gets ready in the morning. That's weird. No, I like, I don't like gaze at him, but I don't know. Like, <laughs> no, I know. I like, I just mean because. You I like and I have watch. been talking recently about how you are not a person who has a routine. No, I'm terrible. I'm, too, I'm getting better, though. I did a whole two weeks of routine. Oh and God. then my grandma died, and then I... Just, oh God! I uh, so that kind of ruined the whole system. You know what? System. Yeah, I, I she did. ruined everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I did a bad job. I was supposed to sleep in my bed instead of sleep on the couch, because I always fall asleep on the couch. I was supposed to sleep in my bed every night for three weeks. That is something and I about you it. that I cannot understand. I don't mean to. I want to sleep in my own bed. When you're tired, 
What happens in your brain where you're like, you know what, I'm going to stay here? <laughs> no wonder you have a bad back. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what are you doing? I don't know. It's all a mess. No, I really want to know. Like, don't try to avoid. Uh, oh, I don't know. I, I think usually it may, it's probably like a combination of like laziness and like that. I, I'm sheer exhaustion. I just, I feel like, I don't know. There was this one night we were uh, hanging out with a crew member years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, remember we got tipsy and then you slept in his bed. Is this Tim? Yeah. Can I not say it? I was too... You can edit it out. Oh, who cares? Well, he always refers to that. He's like... Remember that time Sarah slept in my bed? Because have you not been on a challenge with him since? And I think that must be very strange for him. I mean, he's gay. It's not like... And also, he wasn't home. He was. You guys slept in the same bed, didn't you? <laughs> or did you not? No, I think I've he was out of town, and you were staying story. at his house. Yes. And then we both went out and got boozy. No, no. No. Different he was time. there. He was there the, the, the night. Oh. Yeah, I probably did. <laughs> But now it makes sense because I know this about you that you like can sleep anywhere, evidently. Yeah. Uh, anywhere. Except on airplanes. I hate that. Did you ever sleep on a couch in the challenge or did you always go to no, bed? No, I slept on a couch in the challenge all the time. Jesus. In fact, so I weird. started sleeping on a couch in the challenge in Thailand and then every, because it was the only room with air conditioning. Yeah. And everybody joined me in there. And then it got so bad that production said no more sleeping in the living room because too many people were sleeping in the living room. I love their arbitrary rules. Yeah, but really I was just sleeping in the living room so that Jordan and I could sleep next to each other so that I can put the moose on Jordan. And then guess what? It worked. So. How many times do you guys hook up? Just once. Oh, okay. Just that one heavy hot makeup. Well, no, twice. Because I kept on trying you to like bang? make out with him. No, never. Oh, I, I wish. One of my one of the, my regrets. Many regrets of life. <laughs> oh, I tell man. you. Have more sex. too bad. Been. I know. I no, think about and that a lot. Based on how he kisses, he would have been good. Fire. Fire. Really? Fuerte. (laughs) Wow. He's a hit. Yeah, he's a hit. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. And so I was intrigued by, because people, changing back to viral hits. Yeah. Like when you think about marketing, you know, people are always chasing that Mm -hmm. as like, we got to make this go viral. Mm -hmm. But that's not exactly what goes on. And anytime somebody tries (laughs) to make something a thing like anytime something does go viral and mass marketing and all that kind of stuff gets involved i feel like it soils it a perfect example for me uh is angry birds angry birds was super fun yeah and super popular for a long time i was addicted then it felt like i saw toys everywhere the fair had all angry bird prizes and all that it just blew up and then people tried to to uh profit off of the viral and then what it's not fun anymore well and then i felt like by the time the movie came out 
the last thing I wanted to do was see an Angry Birds movie. So they had put all this money into getting all these great acts. Maybe it's a good movie. I don't even know. They put all this money into something where, like, people love this. Yes. And me, somebody who loved Angry Birds when it first came out, now is so flooded with Angry Birds shit that I never, ever want to see that movie. Wow. Because it's like, ugh, I'm done with that. I'm like, it's like annoying. It's oh like gosh. gimmicky now. It's Poor too Angry gimmicky. Birds. It becomes, gim- you know, like Did novelty. you play the game? Yeah. Like crazy. Like addicted. And then you quit cold turkey? Cold turkey. <laughs> That's funny. We really. I, love when you I do mean, that. people have we, we they don't appreciate no, us. I do. I appreciate. If us. you do appreciate us, can you leave us a five star review on yeah. uh, iTunes? We love it so Talk much. Talk about your favorite pun. Yeah, and subscribe. Um, are your favorite pun? What if they did? Hey, it could happen. Um, do you remember that video that? There was a somebody was teaching a course on, or or a lesson about viral, virality, mm-hmm. and they asked their cla- their whole class to make a video that they would then try to make go viral, uh-huh. and then one of them did. What? What video? It was the one. It was not true. It was like um, fake, fake, green screen or whatever. Oh, yeah. oh, okay. Where um, an eagle comes down and grabs a baby and then drops it. Did you oh, see that one? Oh, I think I have seen that like one. Like it swooped down yes. and someone was filming it and they yes. grabbed the baby and it yeah. was like, <gasps> and then the, the baby got dropped, so it was fine. But they it was superimposed. Yeah. Wow. But and it that worked. One went viral, and huh? it took a while, they you know, a couple weeks or days or whatever, and then they were like, Oh, just don't worry, it's a fake. We were performing an experiment. I'm curious to see if there were because you know, in his book Thompson? Thompson? I want to make sure I get the last name right. yeah, Thompson. Thompson. Mm -hmm. He writes about how it takes the right deliverer of the information in order for that information to become viral. How Mm -hmm. it's much more effective if you deliver it to five people who then broadcast it like a radio to however many. So I'm interested to see how they marketed or even titled that video with the eagle swooping down yeah compared to a video i think if you were to send it to a group of moms that had the who were all of a sudden really concerned about baby safety you have a better chance of it going viral than if you were to send a baby swooping down to a bunch of teenage skateboarders yeah and so i feel like at the time we thought oh wonder what it was about this video that made it become viral maybe it was actually the way that they spread the information and if we were to believe derek's um, book, then that would have been the success is from who got, who'd you get it in the hands of that yeah. could then broadcast it to like way more people. You know, in the beginning of the book, he mentions, uh, how like, let these stories give you a little more insight or be able to see when maybe you're getting tricked mm-hmm. and maybe when you're falling for something that's like, uh, you know gimmick like a gimmick oh that i don't remember that that's interesting yeah and i think it was in the very beginning where maybe in the preface or side or something like that but it said like hopefully it'll make you more aware and realize when your thoughts are and the the biggest thing the biggest area that i found that in is the political stuff mm. oh yeah tell them about that because you said that that was one of your favorite parts yeah now i can't i'm the trying rhetoric. to remember the exact so um that he was talking about speech writing 
and the way that speechwriters are trained to use turns of phrases that uh, are repetitious yeah. and are sticky. Yes. And so if I could look it up and see JFK some of them. JFK is the biggest one. Uh, they call, they're called, one of them is auto, auto, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of it. But essentially what, uh, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Yeah. And when you list them. Or drill, baby, drill was one of them. Yes. Yeah. And how often, what we are, what we are falling in love with is not necessarily the message that they're delivering, but the way that they're saying it. Just if something has a rhyme or, or yeah, a catchy, ring to it, ring to it. That's what that we're means. We're far yeah. more likely to believe it. Like an apple a day keeps the doctor away. No, it fucking doesn't. An apple a day. I don't know. We'll give you your daily dose of whatever the heck is in an apple. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That our brains crave things that are memorable and uh, repetitious and, mm. you know, m- like, make it, it gives you this thing where it's like, ah, that felt good to say. Yes. Like, subconsciously. Yes. Like, it's that was easy, satisfying. That's kind of like the, uh, what is that theory? Maybe it's not, but I think, what is that theory that says... Uh, Occam's razor. This is like the simplest answer is usually the right one. Yeah. It, like there's a there's like a simplicity and a beauty to something, and that's you, when it's simple and clear. That's yeah. what we like or the right one. Yeah. So it's satisfying to the yeah. human brain. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's cool about the book is that he gives a lot of like beautiful stories to illustrate his point. He talks about lullabies and how <gasps> they yes. come from some of the more fa- famous. Um, symphonies and things that were popular when they originated and that's still happening today with music like if you really like a song it probably has the same por- chord progression as another song you really like mm-hmm. and the, we're just recycling stuff but it evolves and changes but it's it's all meant to be familiar in your brain one of uh i talked to him about this in in the interview you can hear later we talk about the story he told about Gallup, who's now the polls are named after him, but he wanted to know, like, what are people really reading in the newspaper? And because mm. people say, right, I read about global terror. You know, they think yeah. they want you either they believe themselves or they want you to believe they read those big, heavy hitting stories. The truth is they read the comics and the fashion stuff. Yeah. And so like what we believe about ourselves, but what we really are are often two different things. But for me, one of the things to take away, cause the Gallup was performing ethnography, which is when you observe human behavior mm-hmm. and learn from it. I think that's such a great thing to remember is like, if you want to learn in you, even if like, you're like my husband who doesn't like reading, just observe. Oh, Just yeah. watch people and you'll learn. Well, there's in any kind of, uh, often in psychology studies or experiments, they do things called coding. So they'll take a conversation and they'll say, okay, we're going to look at how many times, uh, you know, there's displays of like sexual objectification mm-hmm. and any time, you know, you mark it. 
there's no reason why you can't do that exact same thing in your everyday life and gain tons of information by saying like, just becoming more aware. And I think that's a lot of what this book did is it opened up my eyes to, you know, when I hear political speeches, like, okay, what am I, what am I really hearing for things? Or when I hear Bruno Mars, I'm like, okay, I know why I like Bruno Mars now. if you go to church and Uh what is being preached to you, well, the songs that you're singing, they're designed to get you to feel a certain (gasps) way and it's okay. It's just good to know. Yes. Right. So you can kind of be um, very aware and conscious of like, what am I, what am I being told to feel? Yes. Right. That's the, that's the biggest one. Right. Oh my God. This book is good. I think you're getting the point. Um, before we get into the interview, I want to encourage you, if you have not tried it yet to try BioClarity, you guys know how much I love it. It changed my skin. It changed the way my face looks. It's a three-step acne wash and it's one of those no harsh chemicals, um, you know, soothing. They have green tea and chamomile. You know what I have to say? What? Sometimes zits don't only happen on your face. Oh my gosh, tell them. And you can use it anywhere. Tell them what you did. I put it on my bum. I did. I don't, I did. I don't even care who cares. <laughs> Sometimes that's where I get breakouts. And I said, why don't I use the treatment gel on there for a week and see what happens? Happy camper. It cleared it up. Yeah. It's definitely, I love this story. I forgot you did that. Uh And if you got them on your chest, if you get them on your back, Mm -hmm. for people who work out a lot, get them on their back up, rub that treatment gel. Why, if, why, if it doesn't work on my face, why, if it works on my face, why wouldn't it work everywhere else? Right. If you want to try it, go to bioclarity.com. My listeners will get their first month for only $9.85 plus free shipping. It's a $20 savings and it comes with 100% risk-free money-back guarantee if you use code brain candy. So I always feel like, Hey, give it a try. Like I said before, it's risk-free. See what you think. Bioclarity.com code brain candy. Try it on your butt. Like Sarah, (laughs) you'd have a month to try it out. If it didn't work, send it right back. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so let's introduce the author of hit makers, the science of popularity in an age of distraction. Welcome to the show, Derek Thompson. Your book is tremendous. I hope everyone reads it. I know our book club is loving it. And you know when you read a book and then like you start folding down things you want to remember and the entire book is just folded down pages for me now. It was so good. That's great. I, I, as I was writing the book, I, I thought to myself, because the book's so much fun to write, um, that my goal was that it would be as fun to read as it was to write. So I'm so happy that you had that experience. Yeah, mission accomplished because... It was simultaneously yes, filled with amazing information, but it was accessible and a page turner. How the heck did you do that? Uh, I don't know. This is my first book, so I don't. <laughs> I don't have a formula yet. Uh, I just. Uh, I write what I find interesting. I guess what I could say. What I would say is that uh, there's so much you can potentially write about in a book yeah. that is about popularity and pop culture and why we like what we like, but I try to have a really high bar of interestingness. I said, all right, there's all sorts of things that I could write about, but I'm going to have a really, really high bar and only write about stories that either inherently fascinate me or absolutely surprise me. Um, So my hope was that every new story or scientific revelation or connection would be sort of inherently interesting or surprising. Yeah. And it was, and I felt like I, I even wanted more, so I hope you write a million more books so that we can all k- consume those as well. Um, and it's it's kind of meta in that sense because now you're the Mr. Popular one. How does that feel? <laughs> uh, it feels good. I mean, the uh, 
I, I wrote the book in, in a way to write a unsentimental book about a sentimental subject. Um, <laughs> I think people have a very emotional relationship with their favorite songs or movies. You know, they make them cry. They make them feel things. Yeah. Uh, and this was a book that I, I wanted to be, um, you know, to, to make a sort of step back and think, wait, why exactly do I, I, I like what I like? Why exactly does it move me? Um, uh, so, you know, d- has it made me get an appreciation for, uh, you know, my own work? Yeah, to a certain extent. I think I am a little bit more um, thoughtful about um, uh, about how to write compellingly, about what sort of articles I write are going to be most popular. Uh, so, so it has been a bit of a, a self-help journey for myself. Well, in the book, you talk about even just the way you've thought about titles over your career and how to make a really good title that will implore people to then read your content. And I'm wondering why that would change. Like, why wouldn't a good title always be a good title in, instead of evolving as culture changes? Oh, that's interesting. Yes. Yeah, so I, I actually think that a great title um, is constantly evolving. I think it's like why? a fashion. Um, and I think it's because, um, you know, one of the most important principles of the book is this tension between the familiar and the surprising. Yeah. Um, and uh, some people want to make this a formula. They want to say, okay, there has to be some sort of formula for popularity. Yeah. The problem with that idea is that formulas work really, really well when the underlying variables never change. So, for example, there's a formula for salt because salt <laughs> equals sodium plus chloride. And sodium <laughs> and chloride always are sodium and chloride. They never change. But how do you create a formula around the familiar and the surprising when what is familiar and what is surprising is constantly evolving. So I think, for example, that, you know, for a while on the internet, uh, maybe some of your listeners or you uh, in particular are familiar with the concept of clickbait, Mm -hmm. um, headlines that might say, uh, you know, this, this dog and cat, uh, met each other in the parking (laughs) lot. You'll never guess what happens next. And then for a long, for a period, uh, those sort of headlines were really successful and yeah. they were everywhere. Every article you saw in your newsfeed or on Twitter seemed to have this clickbait construction. Yeah. But we sort of soured of it. We got totally <laughs> familiar with it. We realized that these headlines were always overpromising. And so they had to be dialed back. And in a similar way, I think that sometimes you see headline tropes evolve, um, you know, number tropes, for example, uh, 27 ways uh, you know you're an introvert or 19 ways Donald Trump's new policy uh, is bad. Um, and then sometimes readers who see too many of these headlines, too many of these numbers grow sick of them and they say, oh, this is, you know, this is trite. Um, so right, the ideal headlines, like so many other uh, cultural tropes, is, is constantly evolving. So when you brought up the um, 27 whatever's about introverts, because you mentioned that in the book as well, that people kind of enjoy being a part of this little niche group. What is the deal with that? Why are people so into identifying as like in the in crowd? That's a great question. I think that identity almost inherently is antagonistic, which is to say that we always identify ourselves in opposition to a mainstream. Um, this is the sociological definition of what being cool is. Being cool means uh, having a positive rebellion against an illegitimate mainstream. So take a classic example like uh, dressing cool in high school if there's yeah. a dress code. The way to violate that dress code isn't to go to school naked. It's not to do something completely insane. It's to, it's to fuss with the 
um, the, the illegitimate mainstream in a positive way. So untucking your shirt or putting on a hat or wearing one like little article of clothing that's a, that's a, uh, that's a rebellion. Um, and I think that in so many ways, you know, we, we construct our identities in opposition to the world around us that, um, uh, that for example, if, if I go to school with a bunch of, uh, you know, I am, I am, uh, a young male, white, secular, liberal person <laughs> from Northern Virginia. And if I hang out with a young, with a bunch of young male, white, secular Jews from, uh, Northern Virginia, but <laughs> I like Bruce Springsteen and they like Kanye West, then my identity is Bruce Springsteen. Um, my identity yeah. is what makes me different from the people around me. So to, to answer your question directly, I think that people, um, that there's so much that connects us with the world, but somewhat ironically, we want to emphasize the elements of our personalities that make us weird. And for that yeah. reason, um, we are drawn to uh, articles, for example, that tell us that we are not like everybody else. Um, so, you know, BuzzFeed, uh, as you mentioned in the book, I talk about how they have hundreds and hundreds of articles. <laughs> People love are, them. Uh, yeah, right. That are, that are about, you know, 19 ways, you know, you're an introvert. Um, 19 ways that extroverts don't get you. The fact is that the vast majority of us are somewhere in the middle of that introversion, extroversion spectrum. Yeah. But it's so boring to say you're just like everybody else around you. You want to think that you're special. And so content that tells us that we're special um, tends to uh, be passed along more than content that tells us that we're normal. Um, there was an episode recently, or maybe it was a while ago, actually, of um, comedians in cars getting coffee. Do you enjoy mm -hmm. that at all? Yeah, I've seen it. It's funny, yeah. Yeah, so they had Bill Burr on, and what I like about the show is they talk a lot about like what makes something funny, which is similar in a way to what makes something popular. It's the same basic idea, I suppose. And Bill Burr was talking about how he hates how now all of a sudden, in his mind, uh, audiences uh, are relying too much on the context of like their childhood and if they had a bad day as to whether his jokes are funny to them. Wouldn't you think that that would always have been true? That's interesting. Yeah. So I, I, in the book, I talk about sort of theories of, of, of humor as well. And, and it's actually really similar to, to theories of, of coolness, which is essentially that we, um, there's a, a benign violation theory of humor that says that we really like um, jokes that kind of play with the mainstream, play with sort of mainstream understanding, but do so in, in, in sort of a, a winking way. And so you don't want to be too mean in your jokes, but you obviously don't want to just say what everybody knows. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, one frustration that a lot of politicians have right now, um, uh, I'm sorry, that a lot of comedians have right now is that uh, they think they have to be too politically correct, um, that there's so much uh, emphasis on political correctness. Um, but again, this goes right back to, to mainstreams. There are some people who think that, that mainstream thought actually isn't politically correct enough, that, it, that it's you know, too mean to, um, to, to women and to blacks and you know, to, to all sorts of groups that have been maybe historically um, oppressed. Um, and for that reason, those people are much more likely to, to bristle at, at politically incorrect humor. But I think that this is incredibly frustrating to a lot of uh, comedians who are used to visiting college campuses and used to uh, sort of trying to um, uh, to press people's buttons with, without getting, you know, tomatoes thrown at Get them. Get in trouble, yeah. My co-host and I are both from reality television, and we kind of like to explore this, the idea of why reality TV sort of became popular and what what makes it appealing. And it seems like there might be something related to the, the um, material you discuss, which is there's an element of uh, familiarity because you feel like you're there in the room with people. But then 
there's a dissonance because you kind of feel like you shouldn't be watching and these people aren't acting appropriately. Do you think that applies? Yeah, I absolutely think it applies. I think that, well, so one of the major theses of this book is that as much as consumers want to tell ourselves, our audiences want to tell ourselves that we love new things. We really <laughs> want new songs and new movies and new television shows. Yeah. We most reliably fall in love with that which is optimally new which is optimally familiar um we love listening to the same songs over and over we love sequels and adaptations and reboots of characters uh that we've fallen in love with uh this clearly has enormous applications for reality television where we love to be able to see people that remind us of ourselves or remind us of sort of heightened versions of ourselves so that we can put ourselves in the shoes of people who are on that show and say, you know, how would I react? In many ways, this is all, this has already been done, um, in, in movies and storytelling that is fictional. That for example, one of the reasons why, um, uh, something like, you know, Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, these stories that are based on what, um, the mythologist Joseph Campbell called the hero's journey are really popular is that in each of those stories, the protagonist begins as a really relatable character, as someone plucked from our world who is not extraordinary, who is asked to go on this extraordinary quest and then, you know, defeats this evil monster and then comes back to the normal world as a hero. But it's very important in these stories that the hero begin, whether it's Frodo or, you know, Luke Skywalker or Harry Potter, it's very important that in these stories, the hero always begins as the everyman or the everywoman, right? He or she is us. They begin at our level and then they go on an extraordinary journey and we can sort of slip into their shoes and imagine, you know, walking through Mordor or whatever, um, going on their journey with them. This is really similar to sort of philosophically to the concept of reality television, I think, which is that we want to put ourselves um, in the shoes of our heroes um, or, you know, our our villains. And and nothing allows us to do that probably more literally um, uh, than reality TV. You know, and whenever you you mention when people go to a a movie or perhaps read a book, they might think in their mind that they're going in there because they want to escape their problems and and go into another world of fantasy. But the truth is that, as you say, the reader's favorite subject is the reader or the movie. Mm -hmm. What? Doesn't that sort of depress you, though, that we're so into ourselves? Uh, It doesn't. No, it's not not wholly depressing. I mean, I think... um, (laughs) What I would say is that, you know, you know, life is is hard and, you know, there are all sorts of challenges that people deal with every single day that they cannot escape from. Yeah. You know, I, they, sh- they, they should not leave their families. They should not abandon their children. <laughs> they should not seek escapism from the mundane realities of their lives. Um, escapism should be reserved for the entertainment portals that allow them to escape without actually escaping. Um, and the best way to do this is to find stories um, where we can wear the clothes the shoes of the characters. And so I think that the most successful forms of storytelling in lots of different mediums, in reality TV, in television, in huge blockbuster movies, in great books, a lot of these stories invite us to imagine ourselves as relatable heroes that go on somewhat unrelatable journeys. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has to begin at the level of familiarity because, um, because that, that's how we connect to ideas. It's how we connect to individuals. We begin by connecting with the familiar and then we allow the surprise to wash over us. Have you found that since your book came out and you're talking to everybody about it, that it always comes back to Trump? 
Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Are you so I sick honestly, of it or you don't I, mind? I, I call it the uh, yeah, two degrees of Trump. Um, every <laughs> single conversation that I have about this book comes back to Donald Trump within <laughs> at least two questions. You've you've gone way beyond. Oh, thanks. Um, I'm really proud. Education. Yeah, no, you've done a wonderful job. It's of, hard to of, resist. 15 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's impossible. I mean, uh, do you... Did you expect that? Clearly, you wrote the book before we realized what was going to happen. But, I mean, has it been good or bad in terms of for your thesis? Um, it's interesting. So the book was done in September 2016. Yeah. Um, and so it was not written uh, believing that Trump would win the election. Right. That said... Uh, Trump is in the book. He's in chapters one and chapter two. Um, uh, and I think that the theses that I employ to explain his rise uh, absolutely work to explain his ultimate success in winning yeah. the presidency. Um, first of all, I think that although Donald Trump is a shocking figure to a lot of people, he is a very familiar figure for yeah. um, voters who grew up uh, listening to or, or came of age or in the last few years have listened to right wing radio, um, been reading Breitbart, uh, been watching Fox News. Um, they have been consuming messages about the dangers of immigration and the dangers of multiculturalism and the fact that America has lost its way and needs to return to nostalgic values of the 1950s. These are really familiar ideas for tens of millions of people who immediately jumped on the Donald Trump bandwagon at a time when a lot of liberals thought that he was a kook. Um, so Trump, although he seems like a incredibly novel figure to a lot of liberals, is a figure of deep, deep familiarity to yeah. a lot of his conservative fans. Oh God, it's um, so and then, and then second, I would say that um, he uh, he's a genius at distribution. Yes. And the, the twin theses of the book are familiarity over originality and distribution over content. Um, Trump's content is obviously appealing to his uh, to his voters, but it's even more about how brilliantly he dominated media distribution throughout 2016 um, and the, the second half of 2015. I mean, he could take any news cycle and just turn it on its head with a single tweet and get that tweet's message amplified on all of these channels he didn't control. Everybody would have to talk about the last thing that Donald Trump said. And in many ways, you know, getting your message distributed on channels that you don't control is precisely the challenge of modern media. It's the challenge of a book like mine. I don't own any uh, distribution channels. I don't own a radio station. And so that's why I talk to all of these radio hosts and all of these online interviewers and all of these podcasts, right? You have distribution. You have listeners who tune in every time you guys put up an episode. Um, and so I'm, I am here trying to get my message distributed on somebody else's broadcast. Trump was incredibly successful at doing just that, at getting broadcasts he did not control to um, become uh, distributors of his message. You know what's kind of bonkers is, as we're talking about this, even though you didn't necessarily predict his victory, you're like Cassandra kind of, that Greek <laughs> lady that you talked about. Yeah, right. Right? Because if you had said in the book, like, all these things have set him up for uh, possible success, people would have been like, you're out of your mind. Right? Right, right. Yeah, that's true. I think think that's totally true. I mean, uh, I think that that in many ways, uh, the thing that was so confusing about Trump is that he was he was discounted 
uh, by people who thought that he was a novelty. Yeah. Um, because they weren't familiar with the things that he was saying. But right. there were these tens of millions of people who considered him the exact opposite of a novelty, who considered him the inevitable champion of these ideas that had been percolating um, on the right wing for a long, long time. Um, so in a way, you could say that that the, uh, the traditional media was uniquely unqualified <laughs> or unprepared for a figure like Trump. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Whenever you have done the promotion for the book and all these interviews, is there anything that you wish people would ask but they don't? Oh, God, that's such a good question. Um, you know, I, th there, there are definitely some stories. Um, there's some stories in the book that I think don't get that are never um, elicited by uh, by interviews, but that are somehow that are still like sort of my my pet Your favorites. Babies, yeah. So my little babies, yeah. So I'll, <laughs> I'll say one of them. I like discovering the story was one of my most one of, one of my favorite experiences. Um, it starts in this story starts in 1927, uh, where a uh, George Gallup. Uh, whose, na whose last name is, is now synonymous with public polling. George Gallup um, is a dissertation student at the University of Iowa, and he wants to figure out what people read when they open up a newspaper. Yes, love it. And at the time, there's no like media analytics. Like it doesn't, nothing like this exists like we now have today. That can literally, you know, the Atlantic, for example, where I write, um, has something called Chartbeat, which literally tells us at every second of the day how many people all over the world are reading every single article we've ever written. That's horrifying. I mean, it's like, right, it's, it's an incredible window into the world of readers. Um, there's nothing like that, obviously, in 1927. So what George Gallup does is he goes to Iowans' homes and he says, um, open up the newspaper yeah. and let me watch you read it so I can figure out what people read. And it turns out that people don't uh, they, they, well, they say in surveys, I read the front page, I read local news, I read all the interesting po political stuff, the important, capital I, important news. But it turns out that what they actually read, the men mostly read the political cartoons and the women mostly look at fashion photography. Mm. And what I find so fascinating about this story is that today there's lots of criticism that's like, you know, Facebook is making us stupid and Google's making us stupid and Instagram and Snapchat are degrading the quality of like news journalism, yada, yada, yada. But like we were Facebook readers so long before there was a Facebook to read. Um, that instinct toward simple information has always been there. It is part of the mammalian brain. Um, it's just more transparent now because it's so clear when you look at the construction of the newsfeed that we much prefer to click on baby photos than uh, hard news stories. Yes. And he Gallup was uh, basically an ethnographer. He's observing behavior and habits of people. And um, my doctoral dissertation used ethnography as well, but mine was for uh, religion. So I would go to churches and observe people and whatever. And I wish your book existed back <laughs> when I was doing that work, and now I can use it. But, like, 
the churches that I was studying, the mega churches, I was trying to figure out why are they so popular? Why are people coming and and why is it so appealing? But I think so much of what you said is true in those cases. They put coffee shops and lobbies and made people feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the message was largely this, the same. The theology didn't change much, but the presentation made people feel comfort. And there was still tension, though, like the two ingredients that you talk about. Yeah. And, and I, this is such an interesting thing about organized religion, um, which is that, uh, you know, I went to um, I went to Temple when I was a kid uh, every uh, several times every year. Um, and uh, I, in, in the book, I talk about um, cults. But I don't mean cults as in like I think that they're necessary that, that all cults are bad. I, I I define cult broadly as a group of people that unite around the idea that the mainstream doesn't get them. Yes. So um, I you could say that you know that that you know left wing Bernie Sanders voters that you could say that's a cult. You could say that Trump voters are a cult. You could yes. say Catholicism is a cult, that Judaism is a cult, um, uh, that, that listeners to your show yeah. are cults, um, uh, that, that, a, that a cult is, is simply a sociological concept that a group of people unite around the idea that the mainstream doesn't quite understand something. And um, one of the interesting things, one of the paradoxical things about cults, um, and in all these studies of the really sort of crazy ones, the ones like, you know, the Moonies where uh, they, they seem to be brainwashed, <laughs> is that people don't join cults in order to lose their identity. Yes. They join cults for the paradoxical reason that they feel more individual when they belong to the right group. And that is like such a powerful idea, I think. It's such an interesting, weird thing about sort of human nature that we don't feel most ourselves when we're alone. And we don't feel most ourselves when we're like in sort of the, the largest possible amalgamation of, you know, people in our area. We feel most ourselves when we're around our friends, right? When we're, when we're around the people who quote unquote get us, who yeah. share our identity. Yes. And, um, and I think that, that a... A you know megachurch is is a is a perfect example of that um, of a soft cult that unites around the principle that they uniquely understand something that most of the world does not, um, and that by coming together they can ironically feel more individual. I feel like I'm a church right now. Like when you talk and when you write, I am like preach. It is so good and awesome. Thank you. I honestly, so I will join your cult officially, um, but. <laughs> Whenever you'll, you'll get the email very, very soon. <laughs> yeah, email blast. <laughs> right. I mean, I just find that the the work that you've done is applicable on so many different levels and across so many different media, media and, and all of that. So that's why I encourage everyone to go out and read it. Um, what has got your motor running now? Like as you move away from the this book, what is getting your motor running? Oh, that's a great question. Speaking of questions that I wish everybody asked. Um, <laughs> I, um, you know, there's several sort of, um, ideas that I'm sort of working over and thinking about maybe writing a a, a next book. And the next book I don't think would be a sequel of sorts. It would just be, um, it it would, it would have like a, it would have a similar approach, a mix of storytelling and theory. Um, you know, one, one possible idea is, um, I, I'm, I remain fascinated by the concept of identity. Um, uh, the, the fact that we seem to define ourselves, um, antagonistically, uh, against others. 
Um, you know, the, the concept of, of whiteness, for example, had to be invented when they realized that there might be non-white people <laughs> or when there were, frankly, other white people that they wanted to differentiate themselves from. That yes. when they first came up with the concept of, of a Caucasian race, um, that was too broad for Europeans because French people thought that Italians were inferior. Yeah. So then you had to create a sense of, okay, well, the French are a race and the Italians are a race. And then even within Italy, right? Northern Italy and Southern Italy have nothing in common with each other sometimes. And so you had to once again uh, define by that which uh, you were opposed to. Yeah. Um, and even today, I think that this concept of identity, identifying ourselves negatively is, seems like one of the most powerful concepts in politics, um, hmm. that, that people are not – there's this concept in politics called negative partisanship, which says that um, uh, young people are less likely to identify themselves as Democrat. As a, they're more likely to say we are not Republicans, <sighs> right? And Republicans, it's the same thing. There's a lot of Republicans who who will say, I I don't agree with the Republican Party. I just know that the Democrats are always wrong. Come on. So so negative partisanship is that idea that you define yourself by the party that you're not rather than the party you belong to. that's interesting. Which which feeds right back into sort of theories of of cults. Um, And so I, I love that idea. And then I've always been fascinated by the concept of the American dream, the concept that uniquely in America, um, the uh, the poor can can become rich through sheer hard work. Um, this obviously isn't uh, true at the moment, <laughs> as much as we would like this to be true. Right. Um, but I'm interested in where the idea came from, uh, if it was ever true, and if it was true when it stopped being true, and why. Um, uh, because I think that that's that's going to be a really important part of. Uh, um, of the next few uh, debates, uh, so the next few political contests yeah. is the question of um, who can deliver the American dream, right? right. In many ways, Trump won. It, he, it was a dark message, but it was a message that in many, you know, make America great again. We've lost, the American dream is gone and we have to, um, to, to revive it. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, even though the parts of the country that voted for him weren't necessarily poor, um, they were parts of the country where intergenerational mobility was declining, um, which is to say they were, uh, that kids, that they, that they were decently well off, but they weren't getting rich as fast as other parts of the country. So they felt like they were relatively getting poorer. Hmm. So once again, the American dream, you know, might partially explain the Trump phenomenon. Um, and I would love to write about that. Yeah, man, please do. God, you are so brilliant. Um, okay. Last question. What do you keep in the trunk of your car, Derek? Um, this is a tough question to answer on account of I don't have a car as I live Why? in New York City. Oh, you're one of those. Yeah. Do you have yeah. a backpack? I do have a backpack, okay, yes. Okay, what do you keep in it? What do I keep in my backpack? I always keep uh, a new magazine. Uh, uh, I think the either the New Yorker or the Atlantic is in there right now. Yeah. I keep a notepad um, uh, and a pen in case I have ideas that I want to write down in sort of my ideas journal. Mm. Um, and then I keep uh, 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 hair gel. Um, because you never know when I feel like I want to keep things in there that like I will be really at a loss for <laughs> if I don't, um, have them immediately on hand. Wow. So yeah, so deodorant and hair gel and a comb you got to have in your backpack. Um, wow. And then I lastly, did not see that coming. And then lastly, uh, you know, the, the, the obvious stuff like computer and, uh, and a copy of my book in case I need to, you know, advertise it. What? Right, right. You're, you're covered. I, the hair gel threw me. I wouldn't think you would mind, like, if you... As a writer, sort of looking to devil. <laughs> yeah, right, like as that. an intellectual. Exactly, Shay, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, hey, good for you. 
Yeah, unfortunately, sometimes you, you, you have to throw yourself on a television and it's too embarrassing That's to true. walk into that um, makeup room <laughs> looking like you've literally just like walked garbage. come out of bed. So, Well, yeah. I am so honored to talk to you and I am just going to keep consuming your work. You're wonderful and I hope everybody buys Hitmakers and all of your other forthcoming books. Thank you so much. Thanks really for coming it. on the Brain Candy Podcast. Take good care, Derek. You too.